capture. I came this morning and I thought, boy, it's the last day. Everybody shouted out, sung out, screamed out, snotted out, and surely it's all over. And I thought that this morning probably just a little bit of a letdown, just anticlimactic. Boy, I sure missed it on that, didn't I? And uh, then now, 2 o'clock, everybody's eating full as a tick. Uh, but you obviously want to be here because you're back. And uh, for some reason, the baton, baton has been handed to me again. And so I'm going to say my little piece and try to get out of the way. Preacher, thank you so much again for letting me come and have a part in this service. And I have certainly enjoyed it. And if I've been a blessing to anybody, the blessing has come back to me tenfold. And so praise the Lord for that. I picked this up some time ago, and I've, I've just kept it in my Bible. Um, somebody, somebody collected this. Um, these are classified ads that ran in a thrifty nickel or, or some kind of paper like that. Actual, actual classified ads that somebody put in. Uh, here, here's one of them. Uh, free puppies to a good home. Part AKC German Shepherd, part stupid dog down the road. Um, actual ad, actual ad. I, I, I get that. Um, here, here's an actual ad. Somebody ran the newspaper. Open house, body toners, gym, and salon. Everyone welcome. Free donuts. I get that. Get that. For sale, for sale. Encyclopedia Britannica, complete set, 45 volumes. No longer needed. Got married. Wife knows everything. <laughs> I didn't write it. I didn't write it. I'm just reading it. So I'm just reading it. Actual ad. For sale like new parachute. Never opened. Used once. Um, <laughs> slightly stained. Yeah. Actual as. All right, John chapter 13. John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is a little bit over halfway through his gospel. But in this chapter, John has already approached the final week of the Lord's earthly ministry. The scene is the upper room on the night of the betrayal. And in that upper room, the Lord is going to give a final discourse, a final conversation to his disciples before leading them out to Gethsemane. That conversation is chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, and chapter 16 in your Bible. And then chapter 17, he's going to pray, and then they're going out to Gethsemane. The other three gospel writers don't bring us to this scene until the last couple of chapters of their gospel. But John, by design, has omitted entire sections. In fact, he's omitted a year or more of the Lord's ministry to get us to this scene. And when he gets to this scene, he lingers here longer than anywhere else in the Gospels. John had introduced his Gospel back in the first chapter by saying that there had been two responses to the Lord's ministry. The first response was he came into his own, and his own received him not. If you want an outline of John, John chapter 1 through chapter 12 tells you about those who had rejected him. In fact, in chapter 12 and verse 37, he summarizes, Though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That's John 1.11. And then in verse number 12, he said, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe 
on his name. So in John chapter 13, he turns from those who have rejected him. Now he comes into this secret place with the few disciples who have cast their lots with him. And what he's going to teach them in this private, intimate fellowship cannot be entered into by those on the outside. During that last week, which by the way, we are in that last week um, uh, that that, that our Lord was in. And in that last week, there are two major discourses in your Bible that the Lord gave. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25. It's called the Olivet Discourse. In that discourse, he talks about the horrors of the tribulation that's going to come upon the nation of Israel. That is found in the Gospel of Matthew. That's appropriate because Matthew is the Gospel of rejection. The second discourse that he gives him is that he gives is in, in, in John's Gospel. It is called the Paschal Discourse. And in this conversation, he's going to talk about some blessings that he's going to bestow upon his disciples in his absence. It is appropriately found in John's Gospel because it is the Gospel of Belief. So I want you to have the scene in your mind as we go through these verses. They're in an upper room. They've gathered around a table for the final Passover meal. And the Lord begins to talk to them, begins to have a conversation with them. And the intent of the conversation is to prepare them for his departure. He says in chapter 13 and verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, as I said unto the Jews. Whither I go, ye cannot come. And so now I say to you. He's going to leave them with some promises, with some principles. He's going to leave them with a prayer. First the cross, then the resurrection. And in 40 days, he's going to return to the Father and leave them alone. And you have to understand, for the greater part of three years... He has been with them every day near about, and he has provided for them everything, both physical and spiritual. He has taught them. He has comforted them. He has even rebuked them. But he understands that in just a little while, they'll have to continue without his physical presence. When they finally begin to understand what's getting ready to take place, when it begins to dawn upon them that they're going to have to continue in his absence, it it, it begins to bring some anxiety, some some concern, some uncertainty to them. If you'll look in verse number 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. Thou shalt follow me afterward. Peter said, Lord, why? Why cannot I follow thee now? I'll lay down my life. For thy sake. In chapter 14 and verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. If you look in verse 27 of chapter 14, he says again, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In chapter 16 and verse number 6, he says, Because I've said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. When you read through John chapter 13 through 16, There are some very profound, deep truths in those chapters. And sometimes there's a tendency to read it because it's so doctrinal, to read it as a dry theological discourse. But it wasn't so. It was a very emotional scene. The disciples are confused. 
They're anxious. They're, they're, they're fearful. They, they are uncertain. In fact, Jesus himself carries the weight of knowing that the cross is just a few hours away. He enters into the Garden of Gethsemane and he agonizes. But I don't think the agony started when he got to Gethsemane. I believe that that burden is already beginning to weigh on him. And so what the Lord does in that emotional scene, knowing the uncertainty of the disciples' heart, he basically says, gentlemen, I want you to know that it's for your good that I go. I've got to go and you've got to continue to work. And I know that there are hard days ahead. I know that you will face dark, dark times. I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. They hated me. They're going to hate you. But I want you to know that even in my absence that my father and I have prepared some things for you. I'm leaving you with some promises. I, I'm going to give you some possessions. And if you'll grab hold of those promises, it is those things that will sustain you and comfort you and encourage you even in my absence. You know, we've been to camp meeting this week and, well, we've had a wonderful, wonderful time. But camp meeting's almost over. And, and, and I don't know, maybe for a few days you're able to set aside the hardships and, and the troubles in the real life. But, but, but soon we go back to life. We go back to the mundane. We go back to the job. We go back to the trouble. Soon there's no evangelist to preach to us. Soon we don't have the singer singing. Soon we're not shouting it out every day. And you get back and there's some dark times and some storms and some trials and some hardships. And I believe that we can take the promises that Jesus left with his disciples. We can grab hold of the same promises. And when the storms come, when the trials come... I can go back and I can take what he has left us, that inheritance, that possession, and it'll sustain you on dark days. Now, in these chapters, I certainly can't preach it verse by verse. There are nine. There are nine. I don't have time to give you nine. I'll give you three, and I'm out of the way. The first one that he gives is found in chapter 14. It is the hope of heaven. Now, you know the passage well. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. One of the more familiar passages in the Bible on the subject of heaven. And isn't it comforting to know that there is a place, a real place somewhere, where God will one day gather all of his children together. You often hear somebody say, heaven help us. And the truth is, is that heaven does help us. Whatever your lot in life, I promise you that a contemplation of glory will ease your burdens, it'll calm your soul, and it'll, it, it'll bring peace to the brokenhearted. Now, now I, I want to give you the context to this passage. Back up to chapter 13 and look at verse number 33. And let me show you something this morning. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come, so now I say to you. Now in verse 34, he's going to change the subject. Verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So he's talking to me, he says, now I want you to know that I'm leaving, you can't come with me. And then he begins to talk about love and loving one another, that, 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 that commandment. In verse 36, Simon Peter speaks up. 
he has completely missed verse 34 and verse 35. Because in verse 36, he says, Lord, whither goest thou? His mind is still back on verse 33. He, he, he checked out on verse 34 and 34 because, because that's concerned. Lord, where, where, are you, where are you talking about? Where are you going? Whither goest thou? And Jesus answered and said, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me. Now, now here, here, here's Peter. Here, here's Peter. Why can't I go? What are you talking about? He doesn't have all of his theology down yet, all right? Lord, Lord, if it's death you're talking about, Hey, I'll even, I'll face death. I'll go with you. I'll go all the way with you. And, and I love what the Lord said in verse number 36. Jesus answered, whether I go, thou canst not follow me now. I'm glad he put that word now in there. Huh? By the way, he didn't tell the Jews that. No. In verse 33, I told the Jews, whether I go, ye cannot come. Period. You don't believe on me, you're not coming where I am. But I'm telling you, that I'm just going to add one little detail that you can't come now. And it just blesses my heart. That, that one little word is enough to get my juices flowing and just to think, I'd like to be with him now. I can't be with him now, but I will be with him soon. Thank God for that. Now, 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 now I don't believe that Jesus was, was just reading chapters to the disciples. I don't think that when we got to the end of chapter 13, he said, no, let's take a five-minute break, and then I'll give you... No, no, it's a, it's a flow. It's a conversation. And so, so, so he says in verse 37, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I'll lay down my life for thy sake. He's not taking this. Peter's not... There's, there's no anxiety here. And so in my mind, I think that, that John chapter 14 is a continuation of that conversation. It's not the Lord reading to them. He, he's talking to them. And maybe there's a little bit of a silence as the disciples try to wrap their minds around this. He's leaving. We can't come. Well, what does this mean? And so, so, so finally the Lord says, and if I can put it in colloquialism, hey, fellas, don't let your heart be troubled. Amen. You believe in God? Well, believe also in me. And I'm telling you that in my father's house are many mansions. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you. That where I am, ye may be also. He mentions in verse number one, I've got to hurry, I've got to hurry. In verse number one, he mentions a new peace. Let not your heart be troubled. Wait a minute. The disciples are getting ready to face the darkest hour of their life. Within hours, the ones whom they have forsaken everything to follow is going to be mocked and is going to be hung on a Roman cross. And for three days, his body is going to lie in a cold grave. They're going to face so much fear that every one of them is going to run away. And Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Have some peace about this thing. And it could be that you come to camp meeting and there's things that trouble your heart and there's uncertainty and there's, there's anxiety and you seek peace and you can't find it. All I can do is give you the words of Jesus, let not your heart be troubled. But here's what blesses me, Brother Gravely, is that during this time, his heart was troubled. His heart was heavy. In Gethsemane, he sweats as it were, great drops of blood. There is great agony. And I believe that that, 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 that weight is on him even here. Yes, sir. Amen. 
But, but, but even though that weight is there, and even though he has on his mind certain things, not one time do you ever read of the disciples sympathizing with him. Nowhere in the passage do they ever offer any encouragement to him. They don't try to comfort him, no. But, but even, even when the weight of his own sorrows is upon him, he still is able to sympathize with their sorrows. He's got a heart big enough to bear his own sorrow. Oh, help me. To bear his own sorrows and to bear your sorrows as well. He says, let not your heart be troubled. When they couldn't feel his grief, he could feel their grief. There's a new peace, there's a new place, verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. You know, the Old Testament doesn't say much about heaven because the Jews are an earthly people, not a heavenly people. And in John chapter 14 is the first promise that you find of a place in another region where God, the Father, and the Son, and all the saints are going to live together. And he calls it in my Father's house are many mansions. Now, if you have an NIV, you only get rooms. I, I apologize for that because, but, but if you've got a King James, you get mansions, all right? Be good enough reason just to go ahead and change. Go ahead and change it. By the way, the only other time that Jesus ever used that phrase, Father's house, is in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, he goes into the temple. It's the first time that he cleanses the temple. Remember, he did it twice, beginning of his ministry, end of his ministry. And he goes into that temple and he drives out the money changers. Here's what he says. Make not my father's house, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. This is my father's house. This is where my father lives. This is where you worship my father. This is, this is my father's house. End of his ministry. End of his ministry, Matthew chapter 23, comes back to the temple. But wicked men have perverted that temple. And this time he comes in and he cleanses the temple. And this time, here's what he says when he walks out. He says, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And then you have God's house no more. My father don't live here. The temple can't be called the father's house, but now that term is reserved for heaven. A new peace, a new place. There's a new promise. There's a new promise. Verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. It's what we call the blessed hope of the church. In fact, the Holy Spirit has taken those four words, built an entire eschatology around those four words called the second coming. We sing songs. We sing songs about those four words. And I tell you this morning, what I'm trying to tell you is that when you get down, when you get depressed, when you get heavy, that thoughts of heaven, the hope of heaven will help you. It helps me, it helps me to get in the truck and to put a CD on or to run my phone through the radio and have somebody singing to me about heaven and home and it just lifts my, it just helps me. The hope of heaven, the hope of heaven. 1952, there was a girl named Florence Chadwick. Florence Chadwick was a world-class swimmer. She was the first woman to swim across the English Channel both ways. Swam for miles and miles. And in 1952, there was a particular day she was trying for the record books and she was going to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. And the day was set for her to try for the record books. It was freezing cold that day. And, um, and a heavy fog had come in over that bay. 
And um, she got in. She started swimming. There were support personnel, boats beside her, encouraging her. And Florence Chadwick swam for 15 straight hours, trying to get from the Catalina Island to the coast of California. And there was a heavy, heavy, dense fog, and you couldn't hardly see hardly nowhere. And she's just swimming blind is all she's doing. After 15 hours, she was exhausted, just, just didn't think she could go anymore. And, and, and the people in the boats, they're encouraging her. They're trying to keep her. And finally, she, she, she gave the signal so that I, I can't go anymore. And all she could see was fog. And so finally, they reached down and they pulled her into the boat. And when they pulled her into the boat, she had swam over 15 hours. And when they pulled her into the boat, she was like a quarter of a mile from the shore. And they interviewed her that evening. And here's what she said. She said, I could have swam some more. But she said, all I could see was the fog. If I could have just seen the shore. If I could, if I could just seen the shore, I, 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 I could have made it. And sometimes I feel like Florence Chadwick. That sometimes all I can see is the fog. It's all a sea. It's, it's, it's all a sea. It's, it's just the fog and I can't see. But every once in a while, God will let me get in a service like this morning and the fog just kind of lifts and I can I get a glimpse of the shore. I, I believe I can go home and swim just a little bit more. Hope of heaven. Hope of heaven. I got to hurry. Hope of heaven. Let me show you the second thing in chapter 14. Not only the hope of heaven, but there's the promise of his power. Look at chapter 14, verse 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The works that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Watch verse 12. Look at it in your Bible. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Talking to those disciples, I'm, I'm leaving you. You've got to carry on the work. You, you, you've, got to, you've got to continue the ministry. I'm giving you a task to do, and I want you to know that you're going to do greater works than I have. Now, I don't know if they understood that, but that's a little bit confusing. There's been everybody tried to give an explanation to that. And somebody said, well, that doesn't apply to us. It's just apostolic. It just applies to those disciples. I don't believe that. I, I don't like cherry picking the scriptures. I, I, think, I, I think I can get in verse number 12. Somebody said, well, well, you know, the word works is in italics. And, you know, the italicized weren't in the, in the originals. I say baloney to that. I bet you better leave it alone is what you better do. Don't, don't have time to get on that. Charismatics, faith healers, that's their favorite verse. They underline it in their Bibles because now they've got a verse to support the doctrine of modern day miracles. But by the way, it doesn't refer, it cannot refer to greater miracles because no believer's ever done greater miracles than Jesus did. I mean, the disciples, they, 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 they had apostolic power and, and, and they did do some miracles. They didn't feed the 5,000, they didn't calm a storm. So they didn't do greater miracles. And it's not more miracles because they didn't do more miracles than Jesus did. So, so what is he saying that you'll do greater works than these that you see? What, what greater works is he talking about? Well, in John chapter 13, he's talking to him about leaving. In John chapter 14, here's what he says. He says that my absence will actually be better for you than my presence. That's what he says. My absence will be better for you 
than my presence. If I don't go away, I can't prepare a place for you. If I don't go away, I can't answer prayers under to the Father in my name. If I don't go away, I can't send the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. If I can't go away, you'll never know the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. I'm telling you, it's better for you that I depart than I stay. My absence will be better for you than my presence. And the greater works that Jesus is talking about, it's not greater miracles as in signs and wonders. No, it's greater works in terms of the Spirit working in people's hearts. And here's what's going to make it possible. Watch this. He says, he says, he says, in verse number 12, greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. Going to the Father is going to provide the grounds for the greater works because when I go to the Father, I'm going to send the Spirit back and the Spirit will empower you for service and for ministry and for work. And through the Spirit, you're going to do greater works than what you've seen me do. Why did Jesus do great works? Look at verse number 11. Look at verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sakes. The miracles that he did was to provide evidence to the Jewish nation that he is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the anointed one, and for them to have faith in him. And in John chapter 5, Jesus said, I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father giveth me, he said, the same works that I do, they bear witness of me. It is those works that bear witness of me. However, in John chapter 5, the Jews got upset because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day and they thought it's breaking the Sabbath and they're so mad that they want to kill him for it. And so look in John chapter 5, look at verse number 19. Stay with me now. Look at verse number 19. Then answered Jesus, said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, showeth him all things that himself doeth, watch this, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. You've seen some great works, lame man, blind man, you've seen some great works, but I'm telling you that you're going to see something greater than what you've seen. Well, what greater works are you talking about? Verse number 24, verse 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I'll tell you what is greater than a physical miracle. It is a spiritual miracle. The greatest works that's ever been accomplished is when a sinner is transferred from death to life, from darkness unto life. That's the greatest miracle of all. There's something greater than healing the sick. There is something greater than raising the dead. There is something greater than multiplying loaves. There is something greater than walking on water. I tell you, when he passed by my way and when he saved me some 42 years ago, that's a greater work. Now, now watch this. Here's what John said. Here's, here's what Jesus said. In Matthew 11, here's what Jesus said. He said, none greater than John the Baptist. That's what he said. There's none greater than John the Baptist. Well, that's strange. Because in John chapter 11, it said John didn't know miracles. You're kidding me. How's he so great? Huh? I mean, the greatest, the greatest prophet, the greatest preacher is John the Baptist. And in all of his ministry, as eccentric and as strange and as... As I'm about to say, as, as, as much like Brother Bo Wagner is, he is. Uh, he, he, um, as, as, as strange as he was, uh, he didn't do any miracles. 
He did no miracles. And Jesus said, Jesus said, he is the greatest man. I tell you what he did though. Tell you what he did. He stood on the banks of the Jordan River, pointed his finger down a dusty road and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And he turned his disciples into disciples of Jesus. And when John preached and men began to follow Christ, Jesus said, That's greater works. I'll tell you what blesses my heart. I'll tell you what helps me get up every Sunday morning and preach one more time. It's because I have never made the deaf hear. I have never made the blind to see. I've never made the lame to walk. I've never calmed a storm. I've never called anybody out of the grave. But I'll tell you what God has done. He's allowed me to have a little part in bringing somebody to Jesus. Every once in a while, he'll let me witness to somebody. And though it's feeble and it's weak and I stumble over the verses, he'll still get in that thing every once in a while, not many times, but every once in a while, he'll let me preach. And somehow there'll be a little breeze come upon that pitiful little old outline. And somebody will walk the aisle and get saved. And though I've never raised the dead, though I've never multiplied loaves, I'll tell you what he's done. He's empowered me. He's given me a spirit. And through, through the power of the Holy Spirit, greater works. It's a promise of his power. The promise of his power. Gotta hurry, gotta hurry. How much time I got? I'm talking about he's leaving you some things that when camp meeting is over, grab hold of it. He'll sustain you. Hope of heaven. Hope of heaven. Promise of his power. The assurance of his affection. Look at John chapter 13. The upper room scene, the Lord gives the disciples two demonstrations of love, a lesser and a greater. His message is, I love you, but I'm going to leave you. So last time you're going to see me, but I, I love you. It is said that absence makes the heart grow fonder, but absence can also make the heart grow colder. And the promise of his love may grow faint in their ears. And so he gives them a demonstration, not just a speech, but a demonstration. And he says in chapter 13, the last part of verse 1, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. You'll have to read it on your own time, verse 2 through 11. And Jesus washes their feet, extreme example of humility. And then in verse number 15, he says, I'm giving you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I'm doing this as a pattern to you. The pattern is more than the physical act. It's the motive behind the act. I'm not just opening up a new church ordinance. I'm giving you an example of the attitude that you should have one toward another. What is that attitude as I have loved you so you ought to love one another? That's what he says in verse 34. As I have loved you that you also love one another. How'd they know that? By washing their feet. That's the lesser, lesser example. But then he's going to give them a greater demonstration. Chapter 15 and verse 12. This is my commandment. He's going to repeat it. That you love one another as I've loved you. How do we know? Greater love hath no man than this. That a man lay down his life for his friends. And I love verse 14. You are my friends. I've shown you by the example of washing your feet, but in a little bit I'm going to show you a greater example. And I want you to know, men, that when you see me on that cross, I want you to know I'm doing this because I love you. Because I love you. To my shame, there are times when I have doubted his wisdom. And there's been times I've doubted his way. 
There have been times I've doubted his will. But I've never doubted his love. And it could be that there's somebody in here this afternoon and think nobody loves you. Nobody understands you. Nobody wants you. It's possible to sit and camp meet and feel like that you're unlovable. Not worthy of love. With where you've been and what you've done and the dark secrets of your heart. But I want you to know that he loves you. And every time you look at Calvary, it is proof that he loves you. He loves you. I am. I've got to be done one night. Evangelist D.L. Moody was holding a revival service. The song leader didn't show up. And so Moody tried to lead the singing himself, but he wasn't a singer. And it was pretty weak. But in that church building that night, there was a young couple that had come into service was sitting in the back. And the man had a very booming voice. It carried above all of the congregation. Everybody heard him. And as soon as the church service was over, Dale Moody made a beeline to him. He met a young man. His name was Philip Paul Bliss. Philip Bliss became a part of Moody's evangelistic team and would lead singing for him in his crusades. Of course, you know Bliss was not only a powerful singer, he was a great songwriter. A lot of the songs that we still sing, almost persuaded. Hallelujah, tis done. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The light of the world is Jesus. We still sing his songs. On December the 29th, 1876, Philip Bliss and his wife were in Ashtabula, Ohio, finished up a revival campaign. They boarded a train that night with 157 other passengers headed out of town. Started traveling in the night, not long into the journey, the train crossed over a wooden bridge. And the bridge collapsed under the weight of the train, plunged 70 feet to the ravine below. When it hit the ravine below, it exploded into flames. And that night, 92 people were killed. And among them was 38-year-old Philip Bliss and his wife. The night before, Bliss had sang in that revival meeting. The last song they say that Bliss sang was a song he had written titled, I'm Going Home Tomorrow. The rescue workers came, tried to rescue the survivors, pull out the bodies of those who had died, do the investigation, get all the belongings and luggage. They came to Philip Bliss's cabin and his wife and started getting his luggage and his belongings together. And they found a suitcase. They opened it up, began to go through it, and there was an envelope. And on the back of that envelope, there were some words that Bliss had been writing. It was the last song that he had written. Don't know that it was ever published till working on it. And on that last, that little envelope, here's what they read. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, oh, sing of my Redeemer with his blood he pardoned me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt and set me free. Camp meeting will soon be over. Preacher's going home. Shouting will be done. And somewhere down life's journey, 
You're going to face a storm, a hardship, a trial. But he's left you with some promises. And all you have to do is get a hold of them. And they'll sustain you in that dark day.